the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Welcome to another edition of the Spot Track Podcast. My name is Mike G. Three topics for today. The best values from 2022 in the National Football League. Veterans, rookies, the whole works. And then Tom Brady retires again. We walk through the financial career of 23 seasons of Tom Brady, the kind of two versions of his career, right? The Patriots version and the Buccaneers version and how those vary extremely differently from a financial standpoint, the cash output, the contractual history and the cap history, Tom Brady. And then Keith Smith on the back end to discuss Miles Turner's really rare, really unique, really fascinating extension with the Indiana Pacers, what it means for him, what it means for the Pacers, what it might mean for the rest of the league as we approach the February 9th trade deadline in the NBA. That's next. All right, with a two-week gap here for the Super Bowl, I thought it would be a good time to dive back into the 2020-20 fall season and discuss the best value players based on a cost-slash-production analysis. You track this every single week on Track. There's a value rankings both for players and for teams. I'm going to dive through some of the, uh, the spotlights here. It's a pretty stacked team, okay? And look, you can filter this. You can filter out rookie contracts. You can just have veterans. You can just have rookies. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of ways you can slice this. But I'm, I'm just letting all of the data do its thing, right? So players on rookie contracts or veteran contracts, the average salary of a player versus the production they, they put out in 2022, zip it around a bunch of math, and you get essentially a matting grade, which is our TVS rating. Here's the roster, give or take. The quarterback is Jalen Hurts. Any surprises there? <laughs> All right. Look, Burrow's got to be in this conversation. Uh, if I give you the top couple here, maybe that'll satisfy some more people. Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes at $45 million is fifth. Josh Allen at $43 million is fourth. That's the kind of production they put together this year on a grand scale. But Jalen Hurts is the best value quarterback, and he may be the Super Bowl winning quarterback in a couple of weeks here. So pretty simple way to start this conversation. Josh Jacobs is the best value running back in football. Uh, it's hard to argue that. And that's, uh, that's your rushing leader. That's a player who's probably getting the $10 million franchise tag in a couple of weeks here. And uh, we'll see what he can do for the next three, four seasons. He's just about 25 years old. And uh, it's tough to argue. If I give you the top three, Josh Jacobs, Tony Pollard, Austin Eckler, two of the three set to hit the open market right now. So money coming. Any guesses who the best wide receiver in football is? It's Justin Jefferson. Best value wide receiver, not even close. And that's probably going to change. He's going to have a lot more work to do to hold up to 26, 28, 30 million a year, whatever he signs for, probably in the next month or so. Amon Ross, St. Brown, Detroit Lions is number two. CeeDee Lamb, number three. Another player probably getting paid this offseason. Jamar Chase, number four. He's next year. So is Jalen Waddell, number five. So a lot of money coming there. A lot of rookie contracts sitting right there. If I slide down, veteran-wise, the top veteran, the best value veteran wide receiver, Stefan Diggs at $24 million a year, is number eighth on this list. He's the only veteran in the top ten in terms of wide receivers. So all those teams that paid and acquired and traded for and blah, 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 you really can't put a 
put a light to a rookie wide receiver value right now. It's as good as the quarterback value, maybe not as important, but it's uh, it's right up there. Different conversation between what running backs and wide receivers right now in football in terms of value. Travis Kelsey is your top value tight end at fourteen million a year. That doesn't hold well for rookie rookie tight ends, right? Because Kittle's in the top five, Mark Andrews is is right there. Um, this is a this is a position that had I don't know a five year run where I really thought it was going to push and it was getting valued properly and blockers were getting nine million and if you could catch the ball and block, you were worth 15 and it was just going to keep going up into the twenties and the wide receiver stuff was going to be slightly above the tight end stuff, but it was going to continue to grow and it hasn't, it just fell off a cliff. We've plateaued. I don't know who's going to be next to do it. Maybe Kyle Pitts, but now these injuries are going to start to pile up and be red flags on his extension. So we'll see, you know, Pat Fryermuth and TJ Hawkinson are in this top five and they're both, uh, you know, closing in. Hawkinson for sure on some sort of multi-year extension, firing with not till next year. But there is at least, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel here for, for tight ends to continue to get paid at a good good rate. But I can tell you right now, Travis Kelsey, even after he signs his contract, remains at the top of this list. And that's a testament to what he does on the field. But I think it has a lot to do with the market just hasn't soared. There's a rookie left tackle sitting at the top of our list, though. Two of them, actually. Christian Derisaw from Minnesota and Andrew Thomas from the Giants. Thomas is about to absolutely obliterate, I think, the offensive line financial market. Um, he, his valuations are just absurd, and he's now extension eligible with the Giants. You probably want to keep a left tackle around, a good left tackle around, if you're nickel and diamond with your quarterback position, and uh, that appears to be what they're about to do in New York. So. I've got no questions about where Andrew Thomas is about to get paid. Derisaw, I believe, has one more season before he can get extended. He, this, is, uh, this was year two for the number 23 overall pick back in 2021. If I slip, flip over to the right tackle situation, it's Caleb McGarry. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons have two or three really, really good offensive linemen. I believe their guard, Chris Lindstrom, is available for free agency this year. That should not be the case. I hope that there's a tag slash... Uh, extension in place because there's a world where they're really doing things properly right now. And if they can just find that quarterback, either whether it's in the draft or whether it's even if it's Derek Carr this offseason, I, I think there's a lot of pieces in place. Now they've got to they've got to overspend defensively to really get themselves up to speed on that side of the ball. But Gary Lindstrom, Jake Matthews, there's 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 some real names and some real stability on this offensive line to go with you know, Tyler Algier and Drake London and certainly Kyle Pitts. So I don't think they're that far off, and that's probably why they overachieved for 60% of the season in 2022. This is a big part of it right here. Speaking of guards, Chris Lindstrom. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know that was coming, but Chris Lindstrom is the best value guard in football. I've already said enough. Creed Humphrey is the best value center on his rookie contract with the Chiefs who did absolutely the right boring thing by drafting a first-round center after Patrick Mahomes got shelled and lost the Super Bowl because of it. So, excuse me, he was a second-round pick, number 63 overall. But you know what I mean. That's, uh, it's what teams have to do. At some point in time, you just have to identify that you have a problem there, and instead of going and paying one $15 million in the open market, if one is even there, because most of, the, of those players aren't getting to the open market, 
you have to overpay in the draft. And that's what the Chiefs did, and it has paid off handsomely for that situation with Mahomes now. And that's, uh, you have to imagine, those two are going to be tied at the hip for quite a while here based on how things look out of the gate. Defensive ends, Nick Bosa, right? He's, uh, he's injured quite a bit, and, and there's that part of it. That red flag is going to live with him, maybe with both the Bosas for a while here. But I don't see a path where he's not a $30 million player by July 1st. You know, that's just where we're headed here. He's got a fifth-year option ahead of him, so it's not exactly a deadline spurs action type situation. But feels like, especially if they're going to slow play the quarterback stuff and let Trey Lance play out this rookie contract for a couple of years, that Bosa should be getting his big payday right now. Number two on this list, by the way, Greg Rousseau from the Bills, who really did take a step forward. Not Maybe not you know when it mattered most in the postseason. But that's a player, I think, when Vaughn Miller is back and healthy on, on the other side of the field, is really going to take some jumps in the next year or two. Defensive tackles, the interior linemen, the trenches. Quinn and Williams, no surprise there. The Jets got tons of bang out of their buck there. And uh, look, he's going to be right there with, with Jonathan Simmons. Probably not up to the Aaron Donald-type standard, $31 million a year, two and a half years fully guaranteed. It's going to be a little less than that, in my opinion. But we're going to be in the 20s with most of these defensive tackles. I'd put Dexter Lawrence, who's number two on this list, right there in this conversation. I don't think Deron Payne uh, from Washington has done enough over his total resume to get himself over that $20 million hump. But I think maybe right at $20 million is probably about right for him. Uh, so a lot of youth in, inside on the defensive tackle situation. And by the way, more coming. It's a great top end of the draft for those kind of players if you're a team in need. Outside linebackers, to go back to the edge rushers. Uh, Micah Parsons, right? And then, look, Rashawn Gary's second. It's a player not a lot of people remember because he got injured and ripped up his ACL, half uh, Achilles or ACL. I, I apologize if I got that wrong. But terrible injury, I think, in November. And, you know, this that's going to carry through the whole offseason. The Packers could have really used that down the stretch, and I think that's one of the reasons that they kind of faltered when they did. But you put him back in this in, in, on that defense – and kind of run it back, even if it's Jordan Love running the show, they've got some pieces. They have too many pieces to be awful, let's put it that way. And this is a player that has made an impact and is going to get paid here in the next couple of years. And, and oh, by the way, Michael Parsons is next year. So get ready to reset that T.J. Watt market all over again with Micah Parsons. The inside linebackers, right, Jermaine Pratt, Cincinnati Bengals, not the greatest ending if you uh, – kind of follow the tabloids, but he is a, a pending free agent, just finished his rookie contract, and uh, had a monster, just lit up the stat board, tons of, uh, of solo tackles, a couple of forced fumbles. He was all over the field. And, uh, and we have another player here, TJ Edwards, who played every single snap for every single game for this Philadelphia Eagles team and uh, is also a pending free agent. Let's get to the secondary. The best value cornerback of 2022, Legereus Sneed. Damn these Chiefs picks, okay? They've done a bunch of really things, uh, you know, properly over the past couple of years. And this fourth rounder out of Louisiana Tech really turned it on here. He's going to be entering a contract year. He got a nice little bump from a proven performance bonus. But he's an extension candidate in Kansas City. He's going to be sticking around here, I think, for a couple more years. Really showed his value down the stretch here in the postseason, despite the uh, – you know, what could have been a disastrous finish there against the Bengals. Safeties. Rodney McClade from 
the Indianapolis Colts, and Chauncey Gardner-Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles. And the reason I, I have a little snark with that one is the Bengals just, or excuse me, the Saints just basically gave this guy away. Uh, a position that they needed, a position, a defense that they knew they were going to need to rely on this year because of the, I don't know, the uh, inconsistency that the offense was going to be able to provide. And uh, look, they traded Gardner-Johnson and a seventh for a fifth and a sixth. And that's fine, right? This was a cap dump. This was a player, though, that was only making $2.5 million. They just knew they weren't going to extend him. They weren't going to sign him. So they wanted to get any kind of value out of him possible, save themselves $2.5 million in the cap because they were trying to shut 110 at the time. And they did what they had to do. This was late in the summer. They had some more, some more wiggle room. I, I thought this was a trade that should never have been made, but it is to the Eagles' benefit. And when he was injured, they were not a great defense. He was absolutely of value on that field out there. So... I think there's a situation where he gets extended in Philadelphia, and if not, this is one of the next big safety contracts on the open market. There's no question about that. Kickers, back to the Falcons. All right, One of the highest-paid kickers in all of football, Young Hoku. He's got four years left in his contract. He signed a five-year, $24.25 million extension last March. He's a lifer. He feels like one of those guys that's just going to be around till he's 35, 36. And uh, Michael Bagley for the Lions, number two on this list, just number two. Had a great year for the Lions, kind of holding the fort down where Jared Goff fell apart a bit. That's your best value overall roster. If you want to just go veterans, and I think it's you know, kind of a neat way to look at things. We're talking Josh Allen, right? We're talking Austin Eckler. We're talking Stefan Diggs, Travis Kelsey. Okay, we're talking Carl Granderson from the Saints as one of your edge rushers. Inside linebackers, TJ Edwards, as we mentioned. Okay, Hassan Reddick with the Eagles. There's a lot of Eagles on this list. And oh, by the way, that's going to lead to an offseason conversation we'll have soon, probably after the Super Bowl, which is there's a lot of mouths to feed in Philadelphia. This was a very much one-year, let's go push the chips all in. I don't know that this is sustainable. So you're hearing a lot of Eagles names here in value, well, they're not going to be value soon because especially if they win a Super Bowl, their premium price is about to go way, way up. So it's something to keep an eye on for sure as we come down the stretch here. So that's it. That's your best values from 2022. I don't think too many big surprises on there. Bunch of players who are for sure going to need contracts this offseason, uh, you know, starting at the top of the quarterbacks of Jalen Hurts and Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson. You know, your, be your best three value quarterbacks probably add up to about 600 million guaranteed this offseason. And uh, that's just the, the going rate, the price to pay. Tom Brady does it again. February 1st, announces his retirement from the NFL after uh, 23 seasons. Feels, feels real this time. It feels officially, officially official. So um, stop me if you've heard this before, but I'm going to go through quickly the contractual history of Tom Brady because it's as fascinating as Tom Brady's career itself. I mean, not many people now have the discussion of Tom Brady and the greatest of all time and blah, 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 without saying, and oh, by the way, he took less money. And this is a conversation I get into quite a bit because it's what, you know, many football fans now allude to. And then you've got your contrarian that comes out and says, no, no, no. You know, it's all about restructures and it's all about the cap. And, and I have to always jump in here and say, look, there, there are two parallel channels with NFL money, right? There is the actual cash and then there's the cap and the cap is the one that's all fluid and flexible and converted and moved around and, you know, hashtag fake, but not. 
And then there's the actual cash. And if we're just talking about the actual cash over 23 seasons with the accolades he has and, you know, the stature that he's developed and gotten to, Tom Brady took a hell of a lot money, less money than he absolutely could have made. A hell of a lot less. Including, by the way, last year, right? I mean, he made $30 million last year, which is good money. But there were tons of players that made more. Tons. All right? It's just the nature of this sport. There are certain players that feel like they need to be at the top, top, top of the financial market at all times. And do they deserve to be? Yes. And in almost every case, the answer is yes. And by the way, Brady deserved to be there, I don't know, for, for 21 of those 23 years, right? I could even doubt that. He, he was a Super Bowl winner in the first go-around. So it, there is no argument with me about did Tom Brady take less or was it just smoke and mirrors? He 100% took less, okay? And if you want to talk about back-channel payments and promote whatever the hell you want to get into conspiracy theories that you know you're going to go off on your thing it doesn't matter because i track what happens on the field i track what happens from the front offices to the player and i'm telling you right now 333 million dollars over 23 seasons for for arguably the best player in football is value okay that's 14 million dollars a year and his rookie contract stopped after two seasons two seasons he signed a three-year, $866,000 rookie contract that came with a $38,000 signing bonus back in the year 2000, okay? He made $600,000 over the first two seasons, and then he got a bump. He signed a four-year, $30 million extension, which in the grand scheme of things was one of the bigger extensions that he would ever, ever sign if you talk about inflation. 2002, right, $30 million, it's just the way to go, so... He started to jump north fairly quickly there in year three, more so than any other player would now with the rookie wage scale. Okay, so quickly, let's run through these contracts just real quickly. I mentioned a three-year, $866,000 rookie deal, a four-year, $30 extension, a four-year, $42 million extension three years later. Five years later, September 9th, 2010, he went four years, $72 million more. Restructured a little bit, signed a three-year, $27 million restructured extension in 2013. Again, three-year, $27 million in 2013, four-year, $29 million in 2002. Same player, better player, less money. Two years, $41 million extension in 2016. So now we're over $20 million per year, finally, with Tom Brady. Just on a two-year deal, though. Basically got a signing bonus, and it was a one-year deal because... He signed a one-year $23 million extension the next offseason, then a two-year $50 million extension the next offseason. Actually played out that two-year extension with Tampa Bay. Restructured the deal in 2022 after he unretired. And that is where we stand today. That's it. Okay? It's a lot of one and twos. A couple of fours early on when everybody was doing fours, Right? But the four-year, $72 million extension back in 2010, that was the big one. That was the one that kind of set him apart. He restructured it in 2012. He got out of it in 2013. So that's the meat and potatoes, okay? The highest he ever made in a single season was 2021, this, his second year in Tampa Bay at, at, at 
$39.4 million. That's the most cash in one season for Tom Brady. Second most was this past season, $30 million. The three highest paid seasons that he ever had in his career all were with Tampa Bay. He made 97, almost $98 million in three seasons with Tampa Bay. He made $235 million in 20 seasons with the Patriots. He took less. Okay, this isn't a rookie deal that lasted forever. That he got he got locked into his no, he got out of the rookie deal after two years. Okay, signed a signed a four year thirty million dollar extension almost immediately in August of two thousand two. He just didn't go to the top ever, ever. Didn't feel like he had to. Certainly didn't have to. From a life standpoint, from a whole life standpoint, I think Kurt Badenhauser on Sportico said he made two hundred and twenty million or so in just standard promotions during his 23-year career, and that's what we know about. Who knows about the back-channel stuff that all these athletes deal with and the investments and things like that that aren't even made public. But that's it. Only four times in 23 seasons did he make over $20 million in a single year. All four of them were the last four years. So there's no argument. All right, He absolutely took less. His peak max of total contract was 2010, $72 million. He went 40 million twice. He went 50 million once, but tons of fluff built into him. He was getting out of the contracts as quickly as he was getting into them for cap purposes, getting a signing bonus in his hand and getting out of here. Look, he got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 signing bonuses. Okay. And a lot of that is split, split bonuses, right? So we got a bonus in year one and in year two. But that's what, he, that's what he dealt with. Bree up, get some new cash in hand. Don't necessarily go to the top of the market because the cash just keeps coming every year no matter what. And keep the cap hits low. If we quickly flip the cap with Tom Brady, the highest cap hit that Tom Brady ever dealt with in one season or ever, ever provided in one season was in 2020 with the Buccaneers at 25 million. That was his first free agent contract, two year 50 million. He went a flat 25 and 25. That's the highest cap hit he's ever held in the NFL. Four times he was over 20 million. 2010, 2018, 2019, and 2020. Everything else has been under everything else has been under 15 million, believe it or not. So for 20, 19 of his seasons, he was under 15 million against the cap. Yes, he took less, but this is also about one to two years, get out, do it again. One to two years, get out, do it again. Still made himself $333 million, all right? Took plenty of money. But this kind of management was done because of his unwillingness to say, I just want a lifetime contract and we'll deal with the restructures and over and over and over. Keep it short, make the first year guaranteed, and we'll go from there. That's what he did. The dead cap hit right now on Tom Brady, which we've talked about quite a bit, is 35.1 million. It's over 10 million more than he's ever account accounted for on, on a single cap. 
And by the way, I don't think it's ever going to count for that either. So for those of you who don't understand the retirement game, there's two elements happening here. He's on a current contract that's about to expire on March 15th. Built into that contract were void years. Those void years, there's four of them, 2023, 24, 25, and 26, will automatically void on March 15th unless something happens. And the something that happens, that can happen is the Buccaneers can negotiate a brand new contract with Tom Brady, which I believe is going to happen. I said this on Twitter, but I'll say it again here. So Brady announces his retirement today. For those of you who don't know, that doesn't mean he's officially retired. There's actually a paperwork process that has to get you know, filed to the league and then officially penned in blah, blah, blah. So once that happens, then the dead cap scenario comes into effect. Then all of the contract essentially stops, doesn't void, doesn't go away, right? They would still own his rights for through the off season here. But that's it, okay? So what has to happen is before March 15th, and or two things can happen. Let's, let's say it this way. I think the first thing that's going to happen is Tom Brady's going to renegotiate this contract and move that void into the end, to the end of the summer or something around there. Let's get it away from March 15th. And the second thing that's going to happen is the Buccaneers are going to sign him to a one-year minimum $1.165 million contract, which obviously fills 2023. Now, if they want, they may try to make this a two-year contract at minimum salaries over the next two seasons. I'll get to that in a second. By signing into the contract through 2023, they can now wait until June 2nd to file that retirement paperwork. They'll carry Brady at an $11.9 million cap hit all the way through this offseason to June 1st. Okay, Then they'll file it, and it'll become a post-June 1st move. And in doing so, it means the dead cap splits and it's $10.7 million this year, and it's $24 million in 2024. Do they want to take it all in one lump sum, $35 million this year? Probably not, and here's why. This team's pretty loaded. There's not a lot of contracts they can get out of. By the way, by loaded, I mean financially loaded, not so much you know, talent-wise anymore if, based on what we saw on the field. But th this isn't a team that can just rip the Band-Aid off. So taking the $35 million dead cap hit would be difficult right now. They're 55 or so over. So that's that. And uh, I do think we get a resolution here that involves a renegotiated contract to allow the Buccaneers a little bit of breathing room this year. That's 24 million of cap space they certainly can use. As, as of right now, their top 51 is a negative 55, according to Spotrack. So uh, work to be done. Not the only void year, by the way, that they have to deal with. Avante David, Keem Hicks, Julio Jones, William Golston, they've... Uh, they paid Peter to get to Paul, or whatever the freaking expression is, to uh, try to run back another Super Bowl in Tampa Bay. Can't blame them. A lot of cash paid out. What happens now? Right? I did a what's next that kind of involved Tom Brady not being there. But uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers offseason now gets extremely interesting because, like I said, they can't just rip this Band-Aid off. What a... Uh, what is long for this organization in 2023 and then obviously going forward? Are they going to try to drop a Derek Carr-like player into this role, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo? Or is it we're just going to ride this out and then be really bad 
<laughs> for a couple of years because we have to take our medicine and, and see where it takes us. It's, it's fascinating, right? The Leonard Fournette situation, locked in for, one, for at least half a year here, I would think. Mike Evans is on an expiring contract. Chris Godwin has one more fully guaranteed year and then a non-guaranteed $20 million. Russell Russell Gage, one more guaranteed year and then a non-guaranteed. I, I, everywhere I look, most of these players can fall off the roster after 2023. So it kind of did make sense for Brady to come back one more season and see what this roster could do when healthy, right? If the offensive line could stay healthy, Shaq Mason, Ryan Jensen, and uh, in that defensive line with Vita Vea and, you know, Shaq Barrett sort of holding court. Devin White enters a fifth-year option. His situation gets really interesting, but he could fall off this roster after 2023. So they're sort of set up for a one-year, what do we got, and then totally rip this thing apart. I don't know if that's how they're going to operate. And who's going to be that quarterback? Is it Andy Dalton? Is it Baker Mayfield? Is it you know a cheaper version of what Brady would have been? I, I don't know. Uh, it's a very, very fascinating destination for a lot of reasons. It's not a well-coached team right now. Uh, just fascinating. So where this ends up in the quarterback carousel room is, uh, is extremely, extremely fascinating. But there's probably some subtractions that could happen now. But after 2023, look out, because this roster is going to be gutted at that point. Okay, Keith, we have a midseason extension. First of all, how rare is that before we detail this thing? Uh, yeah, extremely rare, especially the type of extension this is. We see more extensions happen now, veteran extensions, uh, than we've ever seen in the league. Guys are prioritizing locking in money when they can. But the renegotiating extension is extremely rare. The last one we had was Robert Covington with the Philadelphia 76ers. That, I believe the ones uh, most recent before that, were Danilo Gallinari and Wilson Chandler with the Denver Nuggets of all teams. So that tells you how far back that was. So it's been quite a while that we've seen a deal like this done. And it's been really a long time for a player of the caliber that Miles Turner is, just because the circumstances to be able to do it are so rare that we even have them available. Yeah, I did a double take when I realized that this was going to actually impact the current salary and cap and all that. That's such a football move, right? I had to make sure <laughs> this was actually a real thing in the NBA because I have so few examples of it. Um, it raises the salary to, to north of $35 million. Uh, I, I think I know the answer, but just tell the world that this just literally changes his cap hit, right? There's no like proration or split season or anything like that. It's just a total increase in cap, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So what it does. So when you have a player who is uh, eligible for this, they have to be on a four or five year contract uh, and they have to, the team has to have cap space. So having those two things are fairly rare to, to kind of come up. Uh, what you can do is you can use whatever cap space you have and you agree to, obviously, you can use that to push the salary all the way up to the player's max. Now, Turner has $2 million of incentives in his contract. So what actually happens here is he comes up a little bit shy of the full max that he could have gotten as far as the cap hit goes, because you have to account for if he earns those incentives, he'll get those. But they gave him everything that they could. So it's a little, little more than $17 million to take him up to just over $35 million for this season. And it, in effect, it kind of acts as like a signing bonus of sorts because of the attack a couple years on. 
but when you look at terms of total money, it actually works out pretty good uh, for the player and for the team. It works out really good for the way the captains end up structured. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, actually. And it's a decreasing contract. This is Miles Turner's, of course, the uh, the two-year extension signed with the Indiana Pacers, who we'll talk about in just a second here. But it's a decreasing contract. We've talked about these quite a bit. I imagine you like this quite a bit from that standpoint. I do, yeah. I think anytime you can do a declining contract for a player who is in their late 20s and will be going into their 30s, it's just good business. Now it can come back to bite you. On the back end, if that guy's still really good because it becomes hard to extend them um, off of that because that number then is fairly low. But in this case, with Turner, you're in a position where you kind of get to a spot where, all right, you know, hey, we can give him two more years. And the other uniqueness of this, normally a contract can only descend by either a maximum of 8% if it's like you're re-signing your own guy um, or uh, 5% if you're signing a player from outside your organization organization in a renegotiation and extension is the only time this is allowed you can decrease the contract from the renegotiated year which is that's this year that 35 million dollar year for turner you can renegotiate that down to by by as much as 40 percent and that's essentially what the pacers did they basically almost have his salary um, down to a little over about almost basically 21 million uh, for the next for next season, and then after that, they do a slight decrease off of that down to a little a little under twenty million. So basically, forty million dollars in new money, and then the renegotiated money. And that's how everybody was throwing around the sixty million number. It's really more like fifty eight million. But you know, well, what's a couple million between friends? Right, and sixty was is is that essentially his max number? I mean, is he is he essentially maxing out here, or could he have done much better in a different situation next season? He for this year, he got more than he ever could have gotten. And he could have only done this with the Pacers. Right. Um, so that's you know, the real important thing to me here um, in next season. He could have potentially signed for far more money. But I think there's a real understanding with him, with the Pacers, his agency. He's not a max guy. He's not someone someone's going to come in and hand, you know, close to $40 million a season to. It's just not the kind of player he's been. So I think what they do is on this is this allows the Pacers to still be in a spot where, hey, we have a very good contract now. And it allows Turner to be in a spot where, hey, I'm still making pretty good money. And I get this extra $17 million I never could have gotten any other way. And what this does for me now is this turns me into, if I still decide a year from now i would like a trade it becomes very easily to trade very easily tradable contract mm-hmm. for him because he's only at about 21 million for next season and you know 20 million for the next season so it works out really really well for him and for the Pacers. what about the the trade restriction does it does the clock start right now on that is that another advantage to this <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. So there actually is no trade restriction ah. on this. And that that is 100. So so to give you a sense of what uh, Keith Smith's Saturday night of fun is like. is <laughs> Yellow legal goes, pad. I'm envisioning a legal pad, Keith. <laughs> it, uh, it's more of Excel spreadsheets, but, but you're not far off. But it was me and a whole bunch of other guys who love the salary cap, like sending messages back and forth of like, 
wait, is there a trade restriction on this? How does this work? And like, it's, it's, it's kind of a loophole in the CBA because it's a renegotiation. So this is something all of us now collectively expect they will close in the CBA uh, negotiations that are currently ongoing right now is there'll probably be some language added, you know, uh, either three months or six months or one year after renegotiation, you can't trade a player or something like that because what could have triggered was if he had done a longer extension, if he had done a four-year extension, or he had uh, added a lot more money from year to year, uh, you know, in the new years of this deal, then that would have gone surpassed the extended trade rules, which would have triggered a six-month extension, which not only would have taken him off the market for the trade deadline, but it would have taken him off the summer market mm-hmm. as well, because then you would have been talking late July. So I think everybody was very smart here. So. We're not going to trigger that. So technically, our the best understanding all of us have is the Pacers could turn around and trade him tomorrow <laughs> if they wanted to with no restrictions. Now, the question is, the NBA, very rarely does this come up. They have the ability on any trade to basically veto it and say there's some form of circumvention. This isn't good for the game as a whole or anything like that. They very rarely pull you know, that kind of pop power out. So it's almost one where it'd be, hey, we're doing this to test and challenge the system. Nobody expects this like, this renegotiated and extended deal was signed for him to be traded, but it is a possibility, which is also kind of crazy. And and I think I'm reading this correctly. It, what you're saying is a $17 million player on the trade market versus a $35 million player on the trade market could obviously bring back a hell of a lot more, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because that's it. Now his number... At you know thirty five million to change, that's his new salary number for the rest of this season. So it's not, yeah, it's very becomes very different, and that's that's where it becomes you know these uh, you know deals of you know hey where do we want to go? It it does change the math on that. Where eighteen million is a contract very easily absorbed by just about anybody in the league. Thirty five million becomes a very different story. But then the minute we tick over to July first that all changes into him being a, you know, a back down into a much more reasonable range in that 21 million or so range. Okay. Real quickly. What, what does this mean for the Pacers? I guess in the short term here, not exactly, you know, just this year, but maybe one or two more years. Yeah. I think what it does is, is first it gives them a little bit of stability, both on their roster and, and um, on their cap sheet. They, they, now you don't have him, being an unrestricted free agent looming over this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't have to take it all the way into June 30th and talking extensions and those kind of things. You kind of now know uh, where we stand with Turner. Um, You've built that goodwill of, Hey, we gave you 17 extra million this year. Um, You know, and and, and on Turner's side, it's, you gave it to me, but in exchange, I took a little less on the next two years uh, with this. Uh, It also, I think for them is they used a chunk of their cap space. They had about 27 million. Uh, left over right now going into this deadline. Now they're down to about 10, but that's enough play where if they wanted to add some salary or whatever, they could do that. It takes them over the salary floor. And then next summer, it definitely eats into what their maximum cap space could have been. They could have been up in the right around 50 million range. And now you're going to be sitting probably somewhere, you know, south of 30. But I think if you're the Indiana Pacers, you're saying, yeah, but we're not getting a max guy anyway. Right. So having 30 million, uh, you know, 25, 30 million, whatever number they've got uh, going into next year, and Miles Turner, and Tyrese Halliburton, and Benedict Matherin, and just good players, um, that's more than enough for us to go do what we need to do spending wise to fill out this roster around these guys. 
nobody, we're not going to be chasing necessarily a replacement for Miles Turner. So they're set up pretty well, not only right now uh, for the next week ahead, heading into the trade deadline, but all the way into next summer also. Do you think it makes them less or more aggressive next week? Like with a player like a Buddy Heald or a TJ McConnell or something like that, who's, you know, maybe not long for this roster. Yeah, I, I think it, I don't know how much it honestly changes. Things. Okay. Cause I, I don't think they were going to change trade Turner anyway. So I think that part, had, I think that ship had kind of sailed uh, for, for him getting traded. But I think, I think they're going to be very opportunistic here at the deadline. If there is an opportunity, just like last year, I don't think they by any means went into the trade deadline thinking, Hey, let's swap the Sabonis for Tyrese Halliburton. That's a, that's the kind of trade that I think is now going to be very telling for where the league is, where the league is so condensed and compact. I think we may see more of those. I call them rebalancing trades where it is, Hey, we're going to trade you a good player for your good player, but we've got too many bigs. You've got too many guards. Let's find a deal that works for both of us. Whereas we've gotten so used to, especially at the trade deadline, it is bad player or bad team sends good player to good team in exchange for young players and draft draft assets. I think now we may see more of those. Hey, we're both kind of okay teams or we're both good teams, but I have a need and you, you, you need this. And, you know, let's uh, swap to, you know, fill both of our needs this way. I think that's what this is going to be. And I think the Pacers are going to be sitting in a similar spot. If it is, Hey, you could really use Buddy Heald because you need some shooting. If we need a slightly bigger player on the wing, all right, let's go. Let's, you know, there, there could be a match there. And I, and I think that leaves them in a position to be at least semi-aggressive uh, going into the trade deadline as a, kind of an opportunistic buyer, if you will. Because I think they are very happy to, hey, let's make the play and let's make a real run at being the seventh or eighth seed versus some of the other teams I think are like Toronto. That's not where they want to be as a franchise, where I think for Indiana, it's just slightly different franchise now. Yeah, I think you're dead on. And just as a final point here, I think it's because so many damn teams are involved now. Right? I mean, I feel like 24 teams or 22 teams are, are really kind of at least considered buyers as you've done your buyer seller pieces for us. There's just with, with the play and stuff, there's just so many teams that at least consider themselves available here. So you can't help but get one of those you know, good team, good team trades. I think every off season or in, in, in every trade deadline here, I feel like the Hawks the and the Pacers and those fringy teams are going to be those kind of teams this year. Don't you think? Yeah, I think there's a really good chance. Those, those teams are looking at it and saying, Hey, our goal is, you know, whether it's, we feel pretty good if we make the play in tournament and we can play into the actual playoffs themselves or, Hey, we just got to get into the playoffs and we can make our run there. I mean, all you got to do is pull up the Western Conference standings page and the Lakers, who are 13th, are still waking up today and like, yeah, home, home court advantage is still in, in range for us. And it's not even a silly thought. Like, like, it really is. It's a good week of basketball and they could, could all of a sudden be the fourth seed in the league. It's just, you know, I've never seen it like this where there are truly four bad teams. It's Charlotte, Detroit. Houston and San Antonio. Everybody else is kind of like, yeah, we're kind of all right. Like, and that's absolutely bonkers. And, and I think it's the combination of two things. It's the advent of the playing tournament of teams have something to play for. and They have a way. Like, like I look at the Lakers. If this was four or five years ago and your season went this far south, you would have said it's not worth it. We're, we're chasing after something we can't get. But now you may say, you know what? Hey, we just got to get in. And as long as we're in, if we're in the playoffs, we can be dangerous. And that changes the math for those teams. Then I think on the back side of it or on the bottom side of it is, 
the flattened lottery odds, you don't need to be horrifically bad from right. game one of the season anymore. Nobody needs to do that. You don't need to be in a position where it is, you know, you, the games you win in March and April, your fan base is angry at you because it's like, what are you doing? Why did you win that game? Now it's, you just got to be one of the three worst teams and you got the same odds as the other guys. So that, that's a very kind of major change that we've seen those two things working together to almost eliminate that, uh, you know, bad, you know, outright tanking group. The teams that are bad are, they're naturally bad, like Houston and San Antonio because they're young, or they had a bunch of injuries and the wheels came off like Detroit or Charlotte. So hey, it is definitely a different uh, environment that we've been in at any point that I can remember since I've been covering this. It, it's fascinating. The I, I was about to ask about divisions quickly and if they're moot at this point, but they're not be, because of the Western Conference, right? I mean, I mean, if you win your division, you now jump ahead of basically eight teams who are half a game apart here. So that's got relevancy. And then obviously your lottery point is a great one uh, because, as you mentioned, there's 27 teams considered in, you know, inside the realm of possibility and four vying for three top spots. In the, it's, it's exactly how prop, the, the, the nerds at the top of the NBA wanted this to work out, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. They, they, they did not like the... You know, when everybody tips off a couple weeks ahead yeah. of Halloween, having 10 teams that were trying to be terrible like that just and that's not good. It's, 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 it's not good for anybody because then what you were seeing is because I had someone ask me the other day, they're like, hey, Boston's got the best record in the league, but they're not a like a great bet to crack 60 wins. Right. And I was like, no, they're not. I don't know that anyone gets to 60 wins. And I think what's happened is it used to be. You were a 55 win team, like that's what your profile actually was. You were going to pick up five wins off of tanking teams that were awful at some point in the course of the season. And now you're not just those five cherry picked wins just don't exist anymore because those teams aren't aren't you know that bad. Like like we were just saying, there's there's only four teams like that this year that are just you know and they're just kind of now they've accepted their fate and they're just kind of playing through it. But even though those teams like the Hornets beat the heat over <laughs> last weekend, like it's, you know, they, they still come up and win. And those four teams, even if you look at them, it used to be right. We used to always be talking about, you know, Oh, no, no one's going to catch the warriors, but you know, warriors and bulls records for wins in a season. But on the other end, you know, someone's going to actually be down in that, you know, nine win, you know, range down there. Now, you know, even the bad teams are probably going to, win 20-ish games in that range. And that's just, it's just a very, very different environment. I think this is exactly what the NBA wanted. It was, we don't want five really good teams, 10 horrible teams, and then a whole bunch of teams no one cares about in the middle. And now I think it's turned into, hey, we've got a season where 10, 12 teams think they can win. We've only got a few really bad teams, and that should make for a really fun trade deadline too. It's made gambling harder, and it's made assessing the trade <laughs> deadline harder. So thank you for your work. You've got four or five great pieces on it. I know you'll continue to crank it out over the next week as we track it. Thanks, Keith. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, my thanks to Keith. Always good getting his info, especially when he's surprised about an NBA contract. That's rare. We're in rare air, but always good to hear his input. Uh, my thanks to Scott Allen for all the great work on the website lately. We've had some updates to the homepage expanding our news section as I continue to write these pieces and Keith continues to write more and more NBA pieces. We'll continue to grow in that regard and continue to expand this website as much as possible. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Giannetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Trek Podcast.